0: If you want to find a neighborhood in Chicago that has changed a lot over the last 30 years, look no further than the area around Belmont and Clark in Lakeview. Gone are the punk shops and goth clubs replaced by a ginormous Target, Starbucks locations, and upscale eateries. Just west of that intersection on the southeast corner of Belmont and Sheffield is a nondescript two-story building. Currently on the first floor is a Bank of America and a Chicago Bagel Authority, The second floor has a barcode fitness center, and next to that is a hair studio. What passers-by probably do not realize is that for nearly 25 years, this was the site of some of the most interesting rock venues in Chicago history. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. Sit back and enjoy while we learn more about the first club at that site, Quiet Night. On a future episode, we'll discuss two other clubs on that site, Tuts, as well as Avalon Nightclub, with some special guests from those eras. Before we jump into the rock history of the aforementioned Quiet Night, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the early 1960s occupant of that building, La Havana Madrid, a Caribbean nightclub that drew crowds of newly arrived Latinos to the city's north side and was turned into an award-winning musical of the same name a few years back. It was Luis Huito Aloma, a Cuban-born relief pitcher for the Chicago White Sox between 1950 and 1953, who opened the club in the early 1960s as a place for his Cuban friends to drink coffee and play card games. As La Havana Madrid received more notoriety, the venue grew into a lavish supper club featuring live Cuban musical acts before closing in the late 60s. Enter Richard Harding. Richard Harding ran Poor Richard's on Sedgwick and Mother Blues on Wells Street before taking over the second floor of the building at Belmont and Sheffield, moving his former Wells Street club Quiet Night, night spelled with a K for the suit of armor at the club, into that spot in November of 1969. The former site of Quiet Night at 1311 North Wells had space for about 75. The new location boasted a 450-person capacity. Many critics at the time and since referred to Quiet Night as a folk venue, but it was really so much more. Sure, the club hosted folk royalty like Tom Paxton, Loudon Wainwright III, Steve Goodman, and many other folkies, but as you'll hear, Quiet Night was not a venue to be pigeonholed. Leading up to the opening of The New Quiet Night, Richard and his wife at the time, Connie, had to wrestle with a liquor license that hadn't come through, a waitress that had never worked tables before, and problems with the lighting. Still, they persevered, opening their club on Wednesday, November 12, 1969. Their opening performer that weekend was Doc Watson, a blind, flat-picking guitar player from Deep Gap, North Carolina, who had performed at the old Quiet Night location and would return many times over the years to the Belmont location and other Chicago venues. If you check out the music service Spotify for Doc Watson under Where People Listen, Chicago is still tops for Watson listeners as of May 2020. January 14th through the 18th and January 21st through the 25th of 1970, The Velvet Underground, who had played Paul Richards in 1966 without Lou Reed, who was in the hospital after contracting hepatitis, played two weeks at Quiet Night with shows at 9 p.m., 11 p.m., and 12.30 a.m. with special seating for, get this, Miners. If your parents were cool enough to take you to a late-night bar to see an art rock band in that neighborhood that late at night, you and I had a wildly different upbringing. The much-discussed light show that the Velvet Underground was known for did not make the trip from New York. Sunday, February 21st, 1971, Miles Davis brings his quintet to Chicago for three sold-out nights at Quiet Night. 43 years old at the time, he had recently started playing electrified jazz shows, as they were called at the time, and was backed by electric piano, electric bass, drums, a percussionist, and saxophonist Wayne Shorter. Davis wouldn't return to Chicago until February of 1974, when he played at the Auditorium Theater. In April of 1971, singer-songwriter Chris Christofferson, who wrote Me and Bobby McGee, which had gone to number one for Janis Joplin the month before in March of 1971, which, by the way, was a full six months after Joplin's death. Think about that. Uh, Plays Quiet Night. Chicago native Steve Goodman, who in 1984 wrote the Chicago Cubs anthem Go Cubs Go, opens the show. Goodman would be named one of Esquire magazine's heavy 100 of pop music in their September 1973 issue. Christofferson would later say of Goodman, quote, Steve lights up the stage like a little candle, end quote. Goodman died of leukemia in September of 1984, and some of his ashes were scattered at Wrigley Field in 1988. May 7th through the 9th, 1971, Texas troubadour Towns Van Zant, who in 1972 would write Poncho and Lefty, plays Quiet Night. Shows at 9.15, 11 p.m., and 12.30 a.m. By the way, many listings I found for shows at Quiet Night had similar schedules, with three performances in a night on Fridays and Saturdays and two on Sundays. It might have caused a fair amount of wear and tear on the performers, but I'm sure it was good for the club's receipts for the night. August 25th through the 29th, 1971, Linda Ronstadt plays Five Nights at Quiet Night, with Eagles members Glenn Frey on guitar and Don Henley on drums. Admission was $3, which is just under $20 in 2020 cash. There is a new documentary about Ronstadt out now called The Sound of My Voice. You should check it out. November 17th through the 21st, 1971, American gospel and soul singer Mary Clayton who famously duets with Mick Jagger in the Rolling Stone song Gimme Shelter, plays Quiet Night with, quote, a hip acid rock comedy team, end quote, as they were referred to in a blurb in the November 10th, 1971 Chicago Tribune, Chichin Chong as the opener. The newspapers at the time really loved to focus on Chichin Chong. One caption reads A Chicano and Chinese who find chuckles in the counterculture move into the quiet night for a five-night stay. January 12, 1972, Carly Simon begins a five-night run at Quiet Night. Later that year, Simon's song, You're So Vain, would be released and go to number one. Fun fact, the Rolling Stones' Mick Jagger contributed uncredited backing vocals to the song. Simon would go on to win an Academy Award in 1989 for Best Original Song for Let the River Run, featured in the film Working Girl. Her opening act at Quiet Night was Jackson Brown, who had written hit songs for other performers and was about to release his first major label album. Brown has gone on to sell 18 million albums to date, and in 2015, Rolling Stone magazine ranked Brown number 37 of the 100 greatest songwriters of all time. Wednesday, March 1st, 1972, Quiet Night hosts two performers billed as folk singers. One was Jerry Jeff Walker, who was best known at the time as the writer of the song Mr. Bojangles. The other, a 25-year-old Mississippi native named Jimmy Buffett, five years before his hit song Margaritaville, and even longer before Parrot Heads were a thing. March 24th through the 26th of 1972, writer-musician Mike Nesmith, solo with an acoustic guitar. $2 cover and a two-drink minimum. Of note in the listing is the lack of any reference to Mike Nesmith being part of the Monkees, something he was trying strongly to distance himself from then and for many years after. Side note, I saw Mike Nesmith and Mickey Dolenz at the Copernicus Center on Lawrence near Milwaukee Avenue in 2018, and they were amazing. If they come through your town anytime in the future, make sure you get a ticket. April 12th through the 16th, 1972, Biff Rose plays Quiet Night. Honestly, I had no idea who Biff Rose is when I started working on this. Uh, turns out at the time he was a comedy writer who performed funny songs, according to reviews, and appeared a number of times on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. I mention him because his opener was a, quote, slightly sad-looking mustached man in blue denim from out Pennsylvania way as reported by the Chicago Tribune's Lynn Van Matra, a guy billed as Jimmy Croce. Van Matra goes on to say, "Quote For an obscure second act, Croce was something special, and he deserves to be better known in these parts before long. End quote. Jim Croce, as he was better known, released his third album, You Don't Mess Around With Jim, the same month he performed at Quiet Night. By October of 1972, Croce was performing on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. The following year, Croce released his follow up album, Life and Times, which contained the number one Billboard chart hit, Bad Bad Leroy Brown. Croce was nominated for two 1973 Grammy Awards for Pop Male Vocalist and Record of the Year for Bad Bad Leroy Brown. Croce died in a Louisiana plane crash along with five others on September 20th, 1973, at the height of his popularity. Croce was 30 years old. January 24th through the 28th, 1973, The Persuasions, five a cappella gospel and soul singers from New York, take the stage at quiet night. Performing before them is, quote, an engrossing opening act, end quote, as the Chicago Tribune's Lynn Van Matre referred to him, from Asbury Park, New Jersey, a 23-year-old named Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen opened his set on acoustic guitar accompanied by an accordion before bringing the rest of his band up. In March of 1973, Graham Parsons, former member of the Flying Burrito Brothers and musician often credited with giving rise to the country-rock hybrid of music, and his singing partner Emmylou Harris perform at Quiet Night. Parsons would die of an accidental overdose in September of that year. Emmylou Harris has gone on to much success. August 8th through the 12th, 1973, Looking Glass, one year after the release of their hit song Brandy and riding high off their recently released song Jimmy Loves Marianne, Play Quiet Night. Chicago radio superstation WLS was a strong supporter of Jimmy Loves Marianne, giving the song much airplay and ranking it number 72 on their 1973 radio survey. October 3rd through the 7th, 1973, Chuck Mangione, a jazz flugelhorn player, who would later have a number four hit on the Billboard Top 100 chart in June 1978 with Feels So Good Plays Quiet Night. Also in October of 1973, Corky Siegel and Jim Schwal, as the Siegel Schwal band, released their seventh album, this one called 953 West, in honor of the Belmont address of Quiet Night. The album cover is of the Belmont L that was sketched by Eddie Belkowski. Balkowski was well-known to Quiet Night visitors. He was a one-handed pianist after losing his right arm in the Spanish War in 1937 when he went to fight as part of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. He was also a painter, a junkie, an ex-con, the janitor at Quiet Night, and the inspiration for the Jimmy Buffett song, He Went to Paris. Loudon Wainwright, Utah Phillips, and Dion DeMucci also wrote songs about Balkowski after performing at Quiet Night. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Studs Terkel called Belkowski Chicago's Huck Finn. Eddie Belkowski died in December of 1989 when he fell in front of an L train. October 31st through November 3rd, 1973, Chicago-born jazz great Herbie Hancock plays Quiet Night. Hancock is best known to a certain generation for his 1983 song Rocket, which went on to win five MTV Music Video Awards in 1984. March 8th through the 12th, 1974, Playboy Circuit and Johnny Carson Show favorite Gabe Kaplan performs his comedy Five Nights at Quiet Night. From 1975 through 1979, Kaplan played Gabe Cotter on the ABC TV series Welcome Back, Cotter, with a young actor named John Travolta. March 29th, 1974, Ray Manzarek, the keyboardist for The Doors, plays Five Nights at Quiet Night. Sometime during July of 1974, Quiet Night closed briefly for remodeling and expansion with a promised new seating area for 500. September 4th through the 8th, 1974, Arlo Guthrie, son of folk legend Woody Guthrie, plays Quiet Night. Guthrie's only top 40 hit, City of New Orleans, was written by the aforementioned Steve Goodman. Goodman met Guthrie in 1970 at Quiet Night and asked if he could play him some songs. Guthrie said he would listen for the length of, quote, Time it takes to drink a beer, end quote. Guthrie was so impressed by what he heard, he recorded Goodman's song on his 1972 album, Hobo's Lullaby. Johnny Cash would record it in 1973. John Denver, Jerry Reed, Judy Collins, Adam Toussaint, Steve Earle, and Jimmy Buffett also covered it. I almost forgot. It was also covered by a graduate of suburban Chicago's Lyons Township High School in LaGrange, Illinois, on his album Sings America. That performer is David Hasselhoff. November twenty seventh, 1974, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee begin a five-night run. Their opener is Tom Waits. April 14th and 15th, 1975, country musician Waylon Jennings and his band The Waylans perform at Quiet Night. May 7th through the 11th, 1975, folk singer Tom Waits appears again at Quiet Night. His friendship with club owner Richard Harding would last for a number of years. July 9th and 10th, 1975, Bob Marley and the Wailers played two nights at Quiet Night. On opening night, the eight-person band, including two female backup singers and led by Marley, played I Shot the Sheriff, Burnin' and Luton, Concrete Jungle, and other Marley favorites. Marley wore a Natty Dread t-shirt to promote their upcoming album. At one point, the backup singers kept themselves busy by tossing spongy balls with the band's name into the crowd, Although I do not believe it was ever officially released, there is an amazing bootleg of the first night on the interwebs. If you want to hear it, and you should, it is amazing. As with most things of this nature, start with YouTube. November 16th and 17th of 1975, Canadian singer songwriter Leonard Cohen performs. He may be best known for his 1984 song, Hallelujah, which has been recorded by almost 200 artists in various languages. Hello In There, a benefit event put together by Quiet Night owner Richard Harding, was scheduled for November 18th of 1975. Tickets were $20, with the proceeds going directly to help feed around a 1,000 needy people in the Quiet Night area on Thanksgiving. Arlo Guthrie was the headliner. March 2nd through the 4th, 1976, poet rocker Patty Smith was scheduled to perform at Quiet Night. Her first album, Horses, was released in November of 1975 to strong sales and strong praise from the likes of Bob Dylan and just about every rock critic of the day. This was a highly anticipated show that unfortunately didn't come together. Smith canceled saying, quote, I just wasn't up to it. I'd finished a grueling tour, I didn't feel in top condition, and I didn't want to do Chicago until I felt in top shape. It's too big a rock and roll town for that. April 12th and 13th, 1976, British R&B rocker Robert Palmer performs at Quiet Night. Palmer would go on to mid-80s MTV fame with songs like Addicted to Love and Simply Irresistible. October 24th and 25th, 1977, Talking Heads perform at Quiet Night. More on that night in a future episode of this podcast. On July 8, 1978, the Rolling Stones played at Soldier Field in Chicago in front of 80,000 fans. After a two-hour show, they departed in limos—22 were used to ferry stones, and crew—and headed north. Appearing that same night at Quiet Night was Muddy Waters, who had just finished a tribute to blues great Willie Dixon, also in attendance at Quiet Night that night, when the Stones and their entourage entered the club. According to Christopher Sandford in his 2012 book, The Rolling Stones, 50 Years, Richards went backstage at the quiet nightclub to see Muddy Waters. When he appeared, Keith promptly fell down and kissed him on his feet. Drummer Charlie Watts, Ron Wood, Jagger, and Richards all joined Waters on stage. The set ended with Jagger and Waters trading vocals on the Waters song, Got My Mojo Workin'. The roughly 700 people in the club paid a $5 cover to see what I'm sure became a story they told over and over and over again. While it would seem like having the Rolling Stones drop by your club and create the frenzy they did, the event was covered in newspapers seemingly everywhere, uh, would guarantee crowds for every future show on the chance that kind of experience might happen again, things appear to have slowed down quite a bit at Quiet Night in late 1978. One of the few bookings I could find was for something in November of that year called Common Ground, a theatrical presentation of music, stories, and poems about three women, a rock musician, a folk singer, and short story writer. The show was described as, quote, a lady sewing circle of the highest order. In January and February of 1979, at a time when papers like the Boston Globe The Pittsburgh Press, the Orlando Sentinel, and the Cincinnati Enquirer were all running the Bobby Justice-penned article. Chicago, the Midwest giant that keeps growing, from the Los Angeles Times travel section that mentioned Quiet Night as a place to go while in town. Richard Harding and the club were having difficulties. In an article written by nightlife critic Larry Cart in the January seventh, 1979 Chicago Tribune, recapping club-going in the previous year, Cart wrote, quote, Dark too, but perhaps not forever, was the quiet night which lost its liquor license in the latest chapter of owner Richard Harding's battle with Chicago's powers that be. Quote. From my research, there were issues with the city of Chicago as early as February of 1974 for various reasons, and one way the city almost always has the upper hand is with being able to revoke a liquor license. With changing music tastes and issues with the city in which you are established, it is often only a matter of time before a club closes its doors for good. By February of 1980, classified ads in local newspapers read Nightclub Restaurant Quiet Night, 953 West Belmont. This 7,000-square-foot, 10-year-old, successful nightclub famous for its live entertainment is fully equipped with liquor license, full kitchen, facilities, sound, and lighting systems, and all furniture ready to be opened. And the phone number, 266-1200. After closing Quiet Night and leaving Chicago, former owner Richard Harding made a living as a concert promoter in Aspen, Colorado worked in water quality control in South San Francisco, and upon returning to Chicago, even drove a cab for a bit. In May of 1986, Harding opened a new club in the then-sketchy Wicker Park area called Da Vinci's Music Gallery at 2011 West North Avenue, now the site of the music club Subterranean with former Quiet Night performer jazz great Stan Getz playing 10 sets in the first three days. Crowds were said to be large and impressed by Harding's new venue. Another frequent Quiet Night performer, Tom Waits, flew out just to hang in the audience. Just one month after opening, burdened by financial troubles, Harding disassociated himself from the club. According to writer Rick Kogan in the Chicago Tribune, Harding was offering, quote, Upscale music acts in what too many consider a downscale neighborhood, end quote. The Harding-Less Da Vinci's lasted only two months longer. Richard Harding passed away in 2012 of cancer at the age of 82. Other notable performers at Quiet Night, Seals and Crofts, Janice Ian, Randy Newman, Tim Buckley, Joan Armitrading, Lightning Hopkins, Jimmy J.J. Walker, not doing comedy, actually playing boogie-woogie piano. Uh, jazz pianist Chick Corea, the comedy duo Proctor and Bergman, one half of Firesign Theater, Sonny Terry, blues great Willie Dixon, Loud Wainwright Wright III, Bonnie Bramlett, uh, Billy Joe Shaver, Charles Mingus Quintet, Jimmy Cliff, Toots and the Maytals, Doctor Hook and the Medicine Show, and many others admittedly there is far more history to quiet night than can be covered here but i hope you've learned a bit and maybe some of this brought back fond memories for those of you who were there back in the day special thanks to john k schneider for creating the chicago history podcast logo he can be found at angel eyes art jks on instagram or via email at j schneider 152 at gmail.com do you have memories of being a quiet night? Photos you'd like to share? Something important I may have missed? Maybe you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. If so, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Please like, review, and subscribe to future podcast episodes. And as always, get out and explore when you can. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.